Jaws of Justice Radio investigates how we can achieve justice from a system of laws deeply rooted in economic, political, and social inequality. We strive to dispel misconceptions created by the news and entertainment industries as well as the fear-mongering of the political system. Listen in as we search out the tools needed to make our community a more just environment. Jaws of Justice Radio, Mondays at 9 a.m., right after Democracy Now! The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, hosts Keith Carnes and Latara Smith-Carnes talk with exonerees from all around the United States. They met while attending the Innocence Network 2023 conference, which brings together directly impacted people, advocates, and others who work to free the innocent, prevent wrongful conviction, and provide post-release support. This annual conference promotes learning and growth. Together, persons celebrate victories, strategize around challenges, and recommit to fighting for a more just future. Keith and Lakara's guests will include Chris Miller, Johnetta Carr, Stephen Pena, and Larry Smith Jr. You can learn more about their convictions in the National Registry of Exonerees, an ongoing project of the University of California, Irvine, the University of Michigan Law School, and Michigan State University College of Law. As does the Innocence Network, Jaws of Justice values diverse, equitable, and inclusive environments, and we endeavor to create a safe space rooted in compassion and respect for persons treated unjustly by the criminal justice system. Wrongfully convicted people often experience feelings of bitterness, loss, hopelessness, anger, helplessness, and chronic feelings of threat and fear when out in public. Being wrongfully accused of criminal offenses can lead to serious negative consequences to those wrongfully accused and their families. However, there's little research on the psychological and psychosocial impacts of wrongful accusations. During our hour, we'll hear about those impacts. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Well, hello, everyone. It's Latara Smith-Carnes of the KC Freedom Project. And I have with me, uh, hosting the show today, Mr. Exoneree Keith Carnes. Keith? Hello. Thank you for being here to host this show with me. This morning, what we are doing is we, Keith and I recently attended an, an Innocence Conference in Phoenix, Arizona, right? Yes. Great, great, great. It was at a resort. At a resort in Phoenix, Arizona. It was really nice. It was an innocence um, uh, conference, and we were able to meet exonerees from all over the world. And I want to say it was it was very um, it, it was it was nice. It, it was nice to it meet. Was. It was empowering. It was empowering to to meet everyone. And so this morning, we have uh, we are blessed to have uh, several exonerees from from various states here with us this morning. So Keith, hey everybody, this is Keith Carnes. I want to thank everybody for participating. I want to thank all my sisters and brothers exonerees. We call ourselves sisters and brothers from another mother because we've all experienced these wrongful convictions and um. Keith, what is an exoneree? Can you tell our listeners exactly what an exoneree is? Because many people don't know. Right. You're right, because within the last month or so, I've asked over at least 40 people, do you know what an exoneree is? And maybe only two knew what an exoneree was. And we need to start really letting everybody know because uh, we are different you know what we've been through our struggles inside and out with this transition and um i just want to thank all of you guys for attending so when you say inside and out exonerees are individuals who did time in prison for crimes they did not commit 
Yes. There are people who have done decades in prison. I believe at the conference we met a gentleman who had only been out a couple of months after serving 52 years in prison, um, Mr. Doyle Williams out of Arizona. And unfortunately, Arizona is a state that doesn't have compensation, just as Missouri. But that's not what that's a whole nother show, actually. But this morning, we have some exonerees with us. Jonetta Carr. That's your sister. Yes, Your exoneree sister, sister Miss Johnetta Carr. Yeah. Uh, Mrs. Carr actually is an exoneree out of the state of Kentucky. Kentucky. And who do we have next on here with us? Stephen. Stephen Pina. And he is out of what state? Boston, Massachusetts. All right. Thank you, Stephen, for being it's on here good. with us. Yeah. We have, um, we don't have. We have exoneree Samuel Randolph. Right. Which Mr. Randolph is out of Philadelphia. Philly. He's out of Philadelphia. Sam, thank you for being here with us today. And then last but not least, we yeah. have who? Larry Darnell Smith Jr. Junior. <laughs> He's on with us today. Yeah. And uh, actually, let me go back. Samuel Randolph is an exoneree out of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Stephen Pina is an exoneree out of Boston, Massachusetts. And then we have uh, Mr. Larry Darnell Smith Jr., who is an exoneree out of Michigan. You guys, thank you so much for coming on here today with us. And we had another exoneree, but unfortunately, I guess he wasn't able to make it. But we yeah. do want to acknowledge him, exoneree. Chris Miller out of Ohio out of Ohio and unfortunately maybe he'll come in here with us here just shortly but everyone thank you so much sisters and brothers from another mother what does that mean sisters I hear you guys say that all the time sisters and brothers from another mother is that because you guys all have like a bond we all have a bond that can't you can't deny it. Well, that's know? not fair because I don't get to say that. So <laughs> that's not fair, doggone it. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. You, I don't think you want this one. I don't want that title. <laughs> okay, okay, great. All righty. Because I know it's been a lot of trials and tribulations, Ooh. and that is exactly yeah. um, what this show is about, is to make everyone aware of the difficulties uh, that exonerees have uh, as they transition back into society. Um, I'm sure everyone is listening. An exoneree doesn't have a, they're not like a regular inmate uh, who is being, who is being released. They're not. They actually uh, don't know when they're going to be released. Many times it's a last minute you know, they might know they're working towards their innocence, but they don't know they're going to be released. So they don't have time to prepare as a person who is in prison, who has an out date or parole date. They know they're getting out, so they prepare. So, Keith. Jeanetta Carr, sister. Speak up. Could you explain to us a little bit of how your transition has been going for you since you've been released? And tell us a little bit about your case. Tell the people about your case and what happened. Yeah. Jeanetta Carr, and I'm an exoneree from Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you, Sister Shatar and Brother Keith for having me on the show. Um, so in 2006, a detective from LMPD came to my best friend's house. I was 16 years old. He took me down to LMPD headquarters, left me in an interrogation room for 11 and a half hours. From the interrogation room, I got booked straight into JCYC. I had laid over court dates every week or every two weeks. They just got laid over to the next week or two weeks. And in 2009, out of fear, I was basically scared into taking an Alfred plea. I was, it was explained to me that I would be still maintaining my innocence. I got out and made parole in 2009. As soon as I got out, um, I started doing research and found out that I wasn't the only one who had been wrongfully convicted. That is estimated that over 10,000 people in America get wrongfully convicted. I couldn't find a job because I had this stuff on my record. So I started getting plasma. And with the plasma money, I go right next door to Family Dollar and I would uh, make signs and I would walk around my city protesting for miles, trying to bring awareness to wrongful convictions. Uh At the same time, I was writing every single innocence project in America, Googling phone numbers, different lawyers, trying to get someone to take on my case. And finally, uh, Jimmer, who was the director of the Kentucky Innocence Project, answered my letter and I got exonerated through a pardon from the governor in 2019. That's what's up. That's so, a blessing. So, man. So my transition back into society um, was very, very difficult. I've been out for 12 years now and I still have difficulties um, because I had to fight to clear my name um, after being wrongfully convicted. 
at no fault of my own and actually what the system did to me when I got out. I never had a chance to just be, you know, I was busy trying to fight for my freedom, clear my name. At the same time, I was trying to, you know, just live life and trying to make up the time that I had lost um, that the system innocently stole from me. And it was just rough. It was rough trying to find a job because obviously I had this stuff on my record. Um, it was rough, you know, just having finances and just, you know, being, you know, living. It was rough healing, you know, and trying to understand what the system had put me through and why. Um, but I believe that everything happens for a reason and we are not the worst thing that we have been through. Um, so now just the transition still is just, you know, how do you make up for so much a lost time, you know, and just being so, yeah. Amen. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, we're sorry that, you know, of course that happened to you. Yeah, um, I to hear that. I know that it is a difficult transition. Uh, I know it's been difficult for Keith, you know, the transition. And, um, you know, there's one thing that the Innocence Conference did for both Keith and I. It allowed us to attend some of those breakout sessions, which were very, very, very helpful. So any exoneree who is listening, who has never been to the Innocence Conference, I pray that you take advantage of it. Next year, I believe it's going to be in New Orleans this time um, because it was very helpful. I mean, it was very, very, very helpful. Would you think, would you say something? Oh, uh, yes. Very empowering, therapeutic. Got a chance to rub shoulders with brothers and sisters from across the world. It's, it was, yeah, it brought up a lot of emotions. Right, you right. Know. So we're going to come back to you, Johnetta, because, like I said, the purpose of the show is to talk about and bring awareness to the difficulties that you exonerees have when you come out of prison. And then also we want to not just talk about the problems, but also let's speak about some things that could help so that we can bring that to the awareness of people. Because things need to change. We do need more assistance. You well, you guys do. Yeah. Even the family members of those who are exonerated. You know, there needs to be some assistance for them because it's a transition for us as well. Mr. Stephen Pina, thank you for being here today. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. But let me let me just say this. As much I as much as I wanna wanna um wear the exoneree badge, I'm what they call free but still fighting. And when I do speaking engagements, I introduce myself as Commonwealth versus Stephen Pina because until I'm able to say I'm an exoneree, um, I'm still under the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, so I still have this weight on my shoulders. It's difficult, but I look at it as, you know, I'm able to drive down the street and be with my family as this case, case awaits. So right now, um, my case is in the hands of Judge Peter Krupp, and he's sitting on his decision. And, you know, based on the way things have gone, it, it's it, there's a strong likelihood, you know, that he's going to overturn the conviction. So let me ask you something. So you were in prison, you get released, but you're still not yet fully exonerated. Can you speak up a little bit? And explain that just a little bit more so that the listeners can understand that. Okay, well, first of all, I was released uh, March 9th of 2022 after doing 28 years of wrongful conviction. During the COVID time, they allowed guys who, because of their health and age, I'm 55, I know I don't look it because black don't crack. That's but right. um, they allowed us, you know, to file motions um, to get out on COVID. Um, and I did that along with my new trial motion uh, issues. However, because I had contracted COVID, got the uh, uh, vaccine, they denied that motion to stay. But as we were waiting, more information started to come out. So um, I remember having, I was doing all my hearings on Zoom and I remember we had a hearing scheduled and my lawyer was saying, listen, the judge canceled it because he wants you in court. And I'm like, for what? Like, you know, to me, it was just go to court. He's like, yo, this is a good thing, Steve. This could be a good thing. Um, turns out it, it was it was a great thing. <laughs> so, you know, um, he, he released me with in his decision. He did say that there's a strong likelihood that he would overturn the conviction. So I still, you know, even though the Commonwealth agreed with everything we we raised, they still wanted to have an evidentiary hearing. Um, which we did, went through that process. Um, 
and you know it it it, it was difficult you know what i'm saying but that's that was my road to freedom um you know as as me and sean ellis always say with me i'm free but still fighting right and there's a few other brothers you know from massachusetts that are in that same position yeah um uh, do you have a Something on your leg, a monitor on your leg. Yeah, I, I, I still have the GPS. Yeah. I, was, I was fortunate enough though um, that Judge Krupp allowed it to come off for me to go to Arizona. But I'm gonna tell you this: this is what's crazy. Mm-hmm. Because all of us know what it's like to be wrongfully convicted and accused of doing something that we didn't do. For me, getting the GPS off was—I was anxious. I was—I was like nervous and scared yeah. because with the GPS it serves as a protection for them to know where I'm at at all times right and because I'm still waiting you know we we, we, we got this conspiracy thing where man, they trying to set me up <laughs> right right <laughs> they trying to set me back I understand so exactly what you're saying and I know some other brothers that have been released that have that on their leg also and it's just not fair once they hit that gavel you know, we should before they hit that gavel. There's so much stuff that they need to do first. You know, yeah. but um, I know our time is limited with other um uh, exonerees to talk to, and I don't, I want to give everybody a chance to try to speak. Okay, and and we'll come back because, like I said, we're going to we want to get into the difficulties that that you you know you guys have had. Yes. We have next Mr. Exoneree Samuel Randolph. Okay, we're gonna go with Mr. Samuel Randolph out of Philadelphia. How you doing, Sam? Yes, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, What's up, man. family? Oh, all these listeners, I say family because that's what we are. That's right? what we are. Yeah. Family. So uh, let me jump right into it. I'll be real brief here. So uh, beginning in uh, 2001, I was I was wrongfully arrested and convicted of uh, out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Case out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Two capital uh, convictions, two counts of capital capital murder. In addition to that, I was also sentenced to 58 to 116 years. On top of that, immediately sent to death row. And I spent almost 22 years there. And uh, for crimes I didn't commit, they knew that I was innocent and always had the evidence, you know, to support that. But they held it. Like I said, a Brady violation. Prosecutor lied, said he lost the entire file. Once the federal judge told him to turn it over. Uh, but I was exonerated on April 7th for 2022. Uh, time that I spent on uh that throw was nothing less than torturous. Like destroyed my family as well. And outside, my kids had to grow up without me. And that's what a lot of, you know, times happened with us and our families when they we were wrongfully convicted like this. So when I came home, Sam, I'm sorry, let me ask you something really quick because our listeners, sure. we can see you because we're on Zoom. The listeners cannot see you, but I notice that as you're doing this interview with us, you are lying down on your stomach. Uh, talking to us is there a reason you know can you tell the listeners why you are lying down on your stomach as you're doing this interview with us oh thanks absolutely yes ma'am so you see i'm laying down in my bed on my stomach so like i said it was nothing less than torture so while i was on death row i became a target for officers uh, of retaliatory abuse so on may 18th 2009 while I was on my way to the yard, I was handcuffed behind my back and uh, defenseless, and I was assaulted by three correctional officers. And when they when they picked me up and slammed me to the ground, two of those officers landed on my spine and legs, causing uh, injuries to my lumbar spine and, uh, and my legs. I, I haven't walked since that day. I haven't walked because of my uh, spinal cord injuries and my leg injuries. So they caused those injuries, but they just allowed me to languish and continue, kept me in continued isolation for 14 years from that point, from 09 oh, to I was released. They didn't give me a shower. I didn't have a shower for 14 years. They wouldn't take me out to the yard. And a lot of times they just continued to torture and assault me. They uh, force fed me 11 times in a three-day span and put it in my lungs. They was trying to kill me. They, they filled my lungs up with fluid while I was chained to a bed. And they was force feeding me that way for... Uh, so what they was trying to do, they kept saying they was they, they was wanting to teach me a lesson for everything, right? And they went and got a court order to force me because I wouldn't eat the food because of the retaliation abuse. They had spit in it, sprayed disinfect on it, all types of vicious games like that. Mm-hmm. So I was never on my deathbed or in jeopardy of dying, but they lied to the court to secure the court order 
And what their plan was to uh, botch the procedure intentionally and then hide behind the court order. Once they got the court order, they used it as a means of torture. Not because they was trying to preserve my life, but they was just trying to kill me. That's, they, that's why they put it, instead of putting it in my stomach, they put it directly into my lungs. And then when they start putting fluid in my lungs, of course, you know, they were drowning me. And they see me struggling against the chains and shackles. And, and they just stood there wicked and just laughed. Yeah, I'm you know, sorry. It was a bit, but a lot, of, a lot of torture and stuff like that. So when, um, so that's what that's what caused the injuries of officers when I was saying, and I, and I need I need surgery on my spine, which I hope to get soon. I found two great doctors that said they're willing to do that surgery, but we're trying to raise a, additional funding that they can't cover. Like I got transitioned to a, a rehab facility, physical therapy, things like that, food and housing for three to six months while I'm out in California. Um, so when I came home, I came home to nothing. I was penniless with no insurance. No, go ahead. So we have a couple of minutes before we go to break. Okay. So when I came home, I'll be real brief. Uh, it was no, um, I had no insurance, no credit, no nothing. Right. Uh, I was penniless and homeless. And uh, those, those were some of the things, the struggles that I faced. And uh, not just that, the technology blew my mind. You know, uh, when I seen an iPhone for the first time, you know, I, I ain't seen it in 20 some years. So I was getting used to building that. Uh, Rebuilding relationships, friends and family that I lost along the way. And um, so when I had access to those type of social services when I first came home or need for treatment and stuff like that. And it's available. So right. I think that would. And I, we can imagine, you know, how difficult that was. And we're going to, when we come back from break, we have one more exoneree that we want to interview real quick. And then we're going to get to the nitty gritty, which is what this interview is about. It's talking about the difficulties, the transitions, the resources, what's there and what's not out there for exonerees. Okay? okay. Everyone, thank you for tuning in. And we will be right back. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. Hey, Maynard, how many of those extra cars or boats do you really need laying around? Your yard is starting to look like a junkyard. Did you know KKFI would take one or all of those vehicles running or not? You could get rid of them, providing you have a title, and KKFI would receive the funds, which would be a tax deduction for you. Call KKFI at 816-931-3122. Now the calendar for the week of May 1st. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal assistance to low-income and vulnerable Jackson County homeowners who fall behind on their payments and face foreclosure. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. You can find Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense events at momsdemandaction.org. These are open to all, mothers and others. The National Indigenous Women's Resource Center declares May 1st through May 7th, 2023, a National Week of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. This is to call the nation and the world to action. You can find events in your area. Monday, May 1st, between 6.45 p.m. and 8.45 p.m., the Kansas City Criminal Justice Task Force may have a meeting via conference call. If you'd like to join in, you can call 605-313-5573, and when asked for the code, enter 454-777. Thursday, May 4th at 5 p.m. is the Criminal Justice Coalition virtual meeting. The Criminal Justice Coalition is a multi-sector team of dedicated advocates who envision a future without mass incarceration. Access info is available at empowermissouri.org. 
Saturday, May 6th at 2 p.m., Poets for Peace with Poets, Spoken Word Artists, Social Justice Activists, and Food is a benefit show for PeaceWorks KC at Blip Roasters, 1301 Woods Weather Road, Kansas City, Missouri, in the West Bottoms. This poetry sharing promotes PeaceWorks' annual Memorial Day protest of nuclear weapon production in Kansas City, Missouri. Poets for Peace is the first event of its kind in Kansas City. A love offering of $5 is suggested. Sunday, May 7th, 3 p.m., doors open at 2.30 p.m., Douglas County Justice Matters Action Assembly will be a large gathering at the Lead Center, 1600 Stewart Avenue, Lawrence, Kansas. Show up. It takes all of us. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. My name is Terry, reminding you that these events and more can be found on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page, as well as the Jaws of Justice radio page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. Now we'll return to our program. Hello, everyone. Interviewing exonerees from around the world. We're talking about our transition back into society and the ups and downs of that. And we've finished, we ended with Samuel. We're going to go back because we, we kind of got cut off yeah. before a break. Yeah, we can. Amen. So, yeah. Samuel, we're going to bring you back on. Out of Philadelphia. And we're going to give you a few more minutes, and then we're going to go to our next exoneree, and then we're going to come back and discuss all of these, the different things that you guys want to share with people about the difficulties and challenges that you all as exonerees face as you reenter society. While we're waiting for the exonerees to come back on, we're having a few technical difficulties. Some of the things that that we do know about in reference to the transitions, we've heard exonerees talk about issues with housing, medical issues, um, the need for therapy and not being able to get therapy. What else have you heard? Therapy is very important. What else have you heard the other exonerees say they've had difficulties, you know, uh, getting or, or accessing since they've been released? From medical to housing, food necessities, transportation, you know, a lot of exonerees, you know, when we get out, it's a lot of things that we don't get that parolees get, you know. I'm not taking anything away from ex-offenders because they're brothers and sisters also, but um, they get so many benefits is allowed to them after they've done their time for their crime. And uh, exonerees, we should get that and so much more and seeing how we don't, the hardships that we go through are just not fair, illegal. Right. So I I know I've heard from talking with various exonerees that, you know, there was issues, like they said, with obtaining housing, because, you know, of course, if you've been gone decades, you have no credit, you have no rental history, you know, um, for those that are unemployed or maybe they're just getting their jobs. And, you know, um, there was an issue of not having enough time on their job or not making three times the rent in order to qualify for some place. So, you know, that's that's very that's difficult in itself. And then also, you know, one major thing that we always hear them talk about is the need for housing, the need for housing and housing that kind of goes back to not being able to rent an apartment because of you not meeting the, you know, the criteria that the different apartment management companies would want you to meet. But also there was a situation with, you know, like we have uh, Samuel Randolph. We had mentioned to the listeners in reference to the, the, the difficulty of housing, uh, not being able to get housing, not having the credit or the rental references and not making three times the rent. And then even though there are some housing subsidy programs, Section 8 and public housing, those things generally take a while because there is usually a long wait list. So, Sam, we're going to go ahead and pick up with you, but I want you to to kind of highlight some of your difficulties that you've had. And then just just a couple of minutes because you kind of got cut off there earlier. Okay, thanks. So as I came home, 
I went I went straight to because of my medical situation. I had to go to a hospital, so they transported me straight to a hospital. Uh, the hospital didn't want me there. I didn't have any insurance, and and my my case was hitting the news. So they was even though I was exonerated, they kept it was still uh, following me when they pulled it up, and and they were saying, oh, double murder conviction, murder. So they didn't want me there. So eventually they paid the hospital paid. And they couldn't just kick me out and I needed surgery, couldn't walk or bend or utilize a wheelchair because of my spine. So they, they 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 basically put me in a hotel. That's the only other place I had to go. So I stayed in a hotel and you know, I was homeless and penniless. So I stayed in a hotel for six months and then we put together a GoFundMe for housing. So I and then I eventually got housing, but the housing it was so hard and difficult to find housing. Cause I, I didn't have it. I didn't have the credit I needed, or like you said, the references. And then when they when they pulled up stuff, my lawyers actually had to attach uh, to my applications explaining what exoneration meant. That this guy didn't do this crime, so don't hold this against him. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and that's discrimination if you do right. And uh, so I, I faced that. Then we was finally able to secure housing. But one of my um, one of my one of my uh, advocates had to travel down here from uh, Boston. Her name is Lori Moran, great lady, but she had to travel all the way down to Pennsylvania to help me get uh, housing, you know, because no one wanted to uh, uh, rent or lease to me because of my situation and the lack of credit or job employment and all that. So I, I, that's what I face now, but now we finally got, I got I got a place, got my own little place now. You know, that's due cool. Due to the uh, GoFundMe. Yeah, due to the GoFundMe and, 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 and donations, which I thank everybody for, you know, putting that together to help get me uh, 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 housing. When they when they talking about getting on your surgery? Oh, so we're still trying to raise the funds for the surgery. So the doctors, when we did that uh, one for uh, for my housing, two doctors from California seen it. Doctor uh, Messi Walla and his team out of LA. They said, "What we want to do in terms of donation is donate our services." We'll do that surgery for free. That part we can do, but the other part we can't cover is all those additional costs and expenses of traveling, flying you out here, uh, and you can't stay in the hospital once you get cleared. You had to transition out into a rehab facility and uh, physical therapy and food and housing. It's going to take three to six months to bring you in California. So I had, uh, so that's what we're raising now, trying to get to uh, the doctors out there, the money to go straight to them. And they said it'd be about a hundred thousand dollars. So that's what we're trying to do. Once we get that, we can get the surgery. Well, I want to say this God's, really quick here. That's that's man. That's something. God will that that happens real soon for you, man. I hate to, that happen. I hate to hear it. I I want to say this real quick. I want to give a big shout out to Michelle Smith. Um, she is with the yes. Missourian for Alternatives Against the Death Penalty. Because when I found out about your case in the media. And, and seeing that you were an exoneree that from death row, okay, I contacted them, and she immediately connected with your attorneys, and she has been a fierce advocate for you, and she has been, you know, trying to get assistance for your GoFundMe. So, you know, I, I, I just wanted to, to, to say thank you to Michelle. Right. Now, Absolutely. Now, we have Mr. What exoneree we're going to bring who, on next? Who we have? Who do we have? Okay, we have Larry Darnell Smith, Jr., Larry. Are you there, Can Larry? Can you hear us? Larry, actually. Out of Detroit. Yeah, he's out of he's out of Detroit. Uh, his wrongful conviction is out of the state of Michigan. Yeah. He did 27 years, 10 months, and I believe seven days, I believe, is what I've heard him say. Oh, no, is it 26 years? Nevertheless, he's an exoneree, and he yes. did a lot of time. Yeah. And he is with us out of the state of Michigan. We're trying to get him on the phone, uh, but... Larry's been home how many years? Do you know? He's been home a couple two, of years. Two been years. Two years. Two years. And 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 Mr. Smith, when I tell you, he's a big advocate. He's a big advocate, not just for those uh, who are innocent and wrongly convicted, but right. also for those who uh, are harshly Over, punished and have been sentenced. overly sentenced. And medically frail. And the medically frail. He is a big advocate for that, and he also just has the biggest heart ever. Um, he has uh, joined along with us at the Casey Freedom Project and have co-sponsored uh, multiple community giveaways. I mean, this man just has a, a big 
heart. He, uh, he's big and tough, but he's also like a big, tough teddy bear. That's what me and Teresa say. <laughs> he's probably not going to like I said that on the radio, but he's, he's, a, he's our big, tough teddy bear, okay? He really is. He really is. He's got a good heart. And we still, so yeah. we're just kind of going to keep trying to get Larry on here. But Stephen, what have been some of the, the difficulties that you faced in your transition? And is there anything going on in your community um, that, 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 that you found that was helpful? Yeah. I remember I talked to you earlier. You said you were having a housing situation also, right? Yeah, one, one of the difficult things for me coming home immediately was trying to get an identification on the Social Security card. But I was yes. fortunate enough to have my child's mother or my son's mother hold on to all this information for 28 years, which allowed me to uh, be able to get my driver's license. Um, I went through this program called Justice for Housing, which was run by a formerly incarcerated sister um, who did time in the feds. And she came home and started this program called Justice for Housing, which helps um, returning citizens, you know, get housing. Um, in, in, in joining the program is called SHARP. You have to attend financial literacy class mm -hmm. and uh, a health, men's and women's health um, class. Uh, but through them, I was able to get a voucher for housing. So I received that in March and currently waiting on, um, I went and looked at a place really nice. You know, I didn't want anything inside the hood. I wanted outside very modern, um, so I'm waiting for the approval um, from the from the, uh, the the management company. You know, I do have good credit, which I'm thankful for. Um, <laughs> and once once I'm approved with that, then it'll go through Boston Housing. They'll send an inspector, and I'm hoping to hear something this week where I can get the keys and move in. Oh man, that'll be a blessing. And I, I want to bring attention to this because um, I know that an exoneree, um, Raymond Gaines, is also from your same, same area. And yeah. he, too, had problems actually getting identification because one thing that, that our prison system here in Missouri will do, they will let the offenders uh, or ex, soon to be ex-offenders take their prison IDs with them, which in some places that, you know, that begins to help them. But there in your area, they would not allow Mr. Gaines to utilize that. They kept the ID and said it belonged to the government. And this man absolutely had nothing and no way to prove who he was. And when things like that happen, it delays you from obtaining employment. It delays you from applying for assistance that you need, whether it's housing, food stamps, Medicare, Medicaid. Yes. You have to have your ID. And he did uh, over... Okay, go ahead. One of, the, one of the things, too, is in Massachusetts, if you're wrapping up a bed or you're going to get parole, they allow you to go to a caseworker and get these things. But in our situations, like you said, Latara, we're released without sometimes knowing. And I know when I went to court, it was the probability of being released, but I didn't know. But as soon as um, I was released, the court officer grabbed my prison ID. So, and that's what happens with exonerees. You know what I'm saying? When right. we come out, we don't have those things in place. Yes, right. Yes. And I know Raymond Gaines, he also has a, a leg monitor on also. And he's been yeah. exonerated. I think we have Larry Darnell Smith Jr. on here. Larry, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, great. Welcome we can back. hear you now. Okay, Larry, tell the people a little bit about who you are how long you've been home, and then I want you to go right into the, the transitions, transition. you know, the, the difficulties you've had. Yes. All right, my name is Larry Arnell Smith, Jr. Um, I spent 26 years, 10 months, and 7 days in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Um, I'm out of Wayne County, Michigan. I'd say, hmm, because the conviction, uh, incarceration for a crime you didn't commit, it's like an ill pill. It's something that the whole family have to swap. You know, you start out as a whole piece of unit, I did, and it, and it broke apart, crumbling piece by piece. A jailhouse niche person I never met before in my life, armed with information by those that were sent and set forth to protect me, and those other people in our communities. Ultimately, boom. So, a jailhouse niche, so that everybody know. 
The term means somebody snitched usually mean like somebody told something that they knew. But in these instances, it's something that they don't know. It's some of that information that's shared or information that's um, handed down by somebody. And that person takes that information and they testify to it in court that you said it. And they let it and they allow it. And that led to 26 years, 10 months, and seven days of incarceration for myself. How long have you been released? Um, since February 4th, 2021. How's the transition been? Um, I had my first grandchild free. I had three previously while incarcerated. Yes. I, uh, Saturday, I was present. And I can say that it has ups and downs because the same young lady that was on my knee when I bounced prior to incarceration um, now has a young lady and young small people. And it's like I'm stepping in to be a dad. I was always trying my best to be, but now I was like a father. So transitioning, having a place to stay, having food. When I first came home, just the everyday necessity, if it weren't for my family, I was done. Right, right. That can be hard on the brain, too. And when it comes to, like, the mental and health therapy, how are you dealing with that? Um, I help as many people as I can. No, health therapy. I know I you help. Therapy. You got a big heart. No, I know you help a lot no, of people. You posed a question to me. I answered it. Oh, okay. my mental health for right. myself. I help as many people as I can. I right. see my psychs. I see my doctors, if you know what we constituted. I make those appointments. I deal with my family. I try to have a two-way conversation versus take on what we learned inside the institution. Right. The one way is, is the other person's way or there's no way. So now that you're free, it's like, uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that, that, that part of it. But for, for the mental health aspect, bro, what we live in out here and how we move and how we navigate, it was part of us being a product of an environment that was by control. So learning to deal with everybody not out here to control me. Some people out here, they want to work with me, but I have to remember that, hey, I've been traumatized. So right. when people get it in their hand, I'm looking. It's like that candy on your dunk. You know that candy <laughs> bar on that bunk? You know the stories? It's like that. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, I'm glad, Keith, that you brought that question up about, the, you know, the mental health and the therapy because um, I, I know for for um, several exonerees who I spoke to at the conference, you know, who knew that, you know, some of them had started mental health services, but they all said that it took them a long time. Number one, they didn't think they needed it at first. And then secondly, when they did say, okay, something's not quite right here. I need some help. Um, someone to talk to other than my family, you know, or my girl or whatever, they couldn't get a therapist. They were put on wall. What, that's what happened to us. We were put on a long wait list. You know, there was no therapist available. And there doesn't seem like there's very many therapists that specialize in trauma, you know, trauma therapists. And so that that is a need I think that the communities need to look at is being able to get with exonerees, you know, when they get out and immediately connect them with therapy services because it, it, it is most definitely needed. Yeah, I find myself sometimes emotionally disturbed with things that I might have to experience or say or accept. I just feel like I wouldn't have to have done if I hadn't have been wrongfully convicted. And that stuff can... It carry it carries on. It really carries over. Um, we don't have very we don't have a lot of a lot of uh, minutes left in the interview. So I kind of want to recap and go back to to uh, our exoneree sister, uh, uh, Miss Johnetta Carr. Johnetta, what were some of the what do you think could happen in the community? What people could do in the community that would make the transition easier for an exoneree? I think that the oh. key is education support and policy change right so as we continue you know to speak we educate people and i think that um organizations that want to you know work directly with impactees right <laughs> um need to um you know just be open you know to actually listen you know what i'm saying and hear what you know we have to say and then as we teach them you know they can learn from our experiences 
and support us, you know, like the different GoFundMe's and stuff that Exoneree set up, support, you know, um, the people that's working, you know, to help exonerees, the different organizations like the Casey Freedom Project, the Chandler Project, the Innocence Projects, and then um, direct policy change is the biggest thing because we know that policy change is really um, what's going to potentially change and um, end and prevent wrongful convictions. Right. So. And I'm, I'm sorry, I want to go back to, to Larry Smith real quick because he said something and I caught it right off the bat when you asked him, you know, what, what about his mental? And he said to give. Larry, I feel you on that one because I'm the same way. That's that's how I keep that, that's that's how I stay good and even is I like to give and be a blessing to others. And I don't know if you heard me earlier, but I want to send a big shout out to Larry and his organization, the National Organization of Exonerees, because you guys are givers, you're movers, you're groovers, you're help. And I called you. I said, Larry's tough. But he's not real tough. He's our big old real giving teddy bear. That's what he is. And anybody know Larry know what I'm talking about. But we're down to the last three minutes of the show. And before we go, you know, Keith and I want to thank everyone, everybody for coming on. And for the listeners. listeners. Right. We thank the listeners for tuning in. But I also want to tell the listeners um, in your communities, um, um, try to, you know. You know, like 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 Johnetta said, policy changes and voting and things as such. You know, it, people in the community, we have the power to change the community because we are the community. And Keith and I, the Casey Freedom Project, you know, we don't have no whole lot of money. We don't have a whole lot of anything, but we have big hearts and we try to help and be a, be a blessing. Just as Larry and uh, we have uh, Anthony and Khalil, he's an exoneree out of Arizona. Yes, yes. There, there are a lot All of exoneree-led organizations who are doing things. And I hate to say this, Michael, I hate to say it, I'm going to say it, that are doing some better, some more things than people who've been in the community with organizations. Okay? Right. <laughs> I just right. got to keep it real. Just got to be 100. Yeah. But, right. you know, Keith, we're down to the last couple of minutes. Okay. I like to get everyone a chance to try to tap in on last few minutes. Let's start with you, Steve. You got to well, make it real me, quick. We only have two minutes. No, for me, yeah. for me, part of that therapy is, you know, like I said, I have a therapist and a um uh, uh, psychiatrist, but like Larry said, speaking engagements is 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 therapeutic for me. Right. Right. Us talking is therapeutic. Right. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time to go to everyone else. It's time for us to close out the show. Larry Exoneree Larry Smith, mm-hmm. Exoneree Samuel Randolph, Exoneree yes. Johnetta Carr, and two big Exoneree Stephen Pina. We yes. thank you guys. For coming on the show today. Thank you. Sisters and, we, and brothers from another mother for life. Yeah, yeah, I know we had to slide that in there, though, <laughs> right? And all you listeners, thank you for tuning in to KKFI 90.1 FM, Jaws of Justice. Thanks. The side of the wall, we bounce back, yo. That's right. Salute. Salute. Absolutely, soldiers. All right, all right. Free the innocent, free the medically frail, free the overseas. That's right. Ten toes down. That's what I heard y'all say all the time. (laughs) Ten toes down. Free the innocent, exonerate from state to state. It's past time, due time now. Yeah, and compensation worldwide for wrongful convictions. All right, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for participating. Free Raymond Gaines. Free Fuquan, free Fuquan. Let's connect, everybody connect. Let's connect. Chris Dunn. I'm Mimi Rosenberg. I'm Ken Nash. We're Building Bridges. Today, witness history in the making from Scottsboro to the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five, the tribute. We'll take you to the unveiling of the Gate of the Exonerated to permanently commemorate the experience of the exonerated five and honor all those wrongly convicted of crimes. 
The gate of the exonerated is a product of more than two years of extensive, in-depth dialogue among the Harlem community and a response to their desire for healing and belonging in the aftermath of the case of the exonerated five and its impact on black and Latinx New Yorkers. Twenty years ago in December 2002, the convictions of Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Corey Wise, and Yusef Salam were vacated. The experience of the exonerated five and their families reflects a historic pattern of unjust arrests and wrongful convictions of black and Latinx youth. The gate of the exonerated aims to shed light on wrongful incarcerations that are the product of inequities inherent in the justice system and ultimately to honor all those affected. The experience of the exonerated five and their families does reflect a historical pattern of unjust arrests and wrongful conviction of black and Latinx youth. The gate of the exonerated, what it aims to do is shed light on wrongful incarceration that is a product of the inequities inherent in the justice system and ultimately to honor all those affected. This has been Building Bridges with Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg. Educate agitate and organize for the empowerment of we the people for another world is possible enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Chain CD. 